Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Laughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And today we got another Career Pathways episode for you. Really good one where we go down some serious rabbit holes. We have Jerry Fraser in who was a fisherman for years and then had a career change into the uh, publication world. And he was the editor and publisher of the National Fisherman for years. And he is now retired and he decided to come in talked to us about his career pathway. So before we get into that, I want to remind everybody to please subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get every new episode directly downloaded onto your device as soon as it's available. And follow us on Twitter at AquademiaPod, or if you'd like to contact us, do so by filling out our contact form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And if you enjoy this episode, we would love it if you gave our show a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you listen to us on really helps the show and helps us get into as many people's ears as possible. That's right. So enjoy this conversation with Jerry and we will talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. All right, so we're sitting down today with Jerry Fraser. Jerry, thanks for coming. How's it going? Happy to be here. Thank you. It's going well. Jerry Fraser is a fisherman turned journalist for the seafood industry, and uh, he's got a lot of stories. I heard some of them beforehand as we had a little kind of reunion with some people that he used to work with that are now here <laughs> at GSA. But uh, I'm excited to hear about your journey. So, Jerry, I'm just going to hand it off to you and just start from wherever you want, and let's uh, let's hear your story. Well, I think probably the fishing is the more interesting part, and it was an unlikely. Uh, place for me to wind up. I was born in New York City and uh, and lived there as a boy. And my uh, one spring, or I guess it was in the spring, my mother said, well, we can't stay in the city anymore during the summertime. New York City was an awful place in the summer then. It's probably worse now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she said, we, we want to go to Cape Cod. You want to go to Maine? And I don't know if she must have had rents lined up or something like that. And uh, my sister and I both said, we want to go to Maine for no particular reason. And there we were. I was, uh, I think, nine years old, summer 62. And I got there and she dragged me to the beach two or three times. But the first time I went down to the cove in Agunquit, Perkins Cove, I, I found my home. I knew, I really knew right then and there, that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I, summers I went lobstering, uh, as a, as a helper in those days. And, uh, eventually I, I, I went commercial fishing after I got out of high school. So that's kind of it. My mother was a writer. My father was a writer. Uh, I always liked to fool around. I had the writing bug, I guess, always. And, um, in the, uh, 1980s, fishing got a little tougher, and I started. Well, I started writing a column for ten dollars a week for the local paper, the York Weekly, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, how I got the column was, I wrote a letter to the paper, and somebody thought it was a good letter. <laughs> and the York Weekly had a new editor and publisher, and she was desperate for somebody to to write. You know what I mean? A column. So I had, a, I had a. That was my kind of my in. And uh, <laughs> someone who was desperate. So I said to my father, "Geez, uh, how much money?" My father was a was reporting for the New York Times. And I said to my father, well, how much money should I get? And he said, if they publish anything you write, don't even ask for any money. Just be glad they publish yeah. it. <laughs> so I got $10 a week and then I get a little bit more. And then uh, and then I went to work for the York County Star. They offered me 25. I was still fishing. They offered me $25 for one weekly column. Some were on fishing, some were on other stuff. And, uh, and then eventually they offered me a full-time job. And I said, no, this would have been 87. 
So this was about five years after I started writing columns. And, um, and I said, no. And then, um, I don't know, six months, eight months, nine months later, they wrote me again and asked me again. And I said, yeah, just like that. I don't know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, and that was it. I, I, uh, the mood of, was right that day. The mood was right that day. And I, I, wa- I walked away from fishing. I, as we know, you never really leave fishing or it becomes a part of you. But I, I left fishing at that point and started working at the York County Co-Star. And then I worked um, at the Portsmouth Herald right over here. Oh, yeah. And for two years. And then I decided I wanted to work at the Boston Globe. That was the kind of paper everybody talked about. Mike yeah. Bronicle was there then. They had great sports writers. Uh, so I, uh, I, I, I applied to the Globe, and uh, I went and uh, they, had a, they had a job fair. And I went to the job fair, and uh, I brought almost everything I'd ever written. <laughs> and I, I sat down with the interviewer. He was interviewing scores of people. You didn't have to be anybody to get an interview. And he said, Jesus, he said, if you don't know what your best stuff is, how am I supposed to know? So that was it. I went away, and I didn't darken their doorway again for four That's or five years. That's pretty eye-opening. Huh? Yeah. But, but, but I tell people the same thing now. Don't, don't send a sheet full of clips. Send one, or maybe two at the most. If you, if like one's a feature, one's harder. So yeah, and uh, but I also decided that I needed to get a little more experience in a larger circulation area. So when my our son graduated from high school in 1991, went to college, and I got a job with the Florida newspaper as a copy editor, and we went to Florida for a year and a half, and I got hired out of there by the Globe. So it worked out. It worked out pretty well. I you know was besieging them with clips and stuff like that. And what were you doing <laughs> at, at the Globe? I was a, a copy editor at the Globe, okay. and I started as a copy editor. I did write some stuff for him. I wrote two pieces on fishing, two Sunday pieces on fishing. I wrote a couple of book reviews. I wrote um, a couple of living pieces. I didn't do any hard news. I wrote one edit, one column, which they didn't use because they, they liked it, but they said Matt, Matt Storm, being the editor at the time, said had a policy that he didn't want people on the, in edit, editing, editing positions um, writing columns because he felt like mm. it, would, it would, you know, have an, it, it, there would be a taint to your edit, or the, and the perception could be that you were tainted in as you edited stuff. So hmm. they never used it. But um, yeah, and then uh, I figured I was there forever. But the but the drive was wearing me out. The the, the commute. And it so was were you work- commuting from every Maine day from to Wells Boston. every day? Wow. And, well, I was going in in the afternoon. Copy editors working in the afternoon even, and um, at, at, at a morning paper and. Uh, Every year, you know, once the, once April first would come, I'd say, "Ah, it's okay now. I don't have to worry about the storms because the storms were brutal." You know what I mean? Yeah, I bet. Totally. And they would they would call you if 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 there were like eight clouds in the sky, they would call you and say, "We have a hotel room booked for you." In other oh words, get down here. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And they, and leave, they, leave now. <laughs> <laughs> so so you knew that the weather wasn't going to be an excuse. So and, and just it, the driving was stressful. I only stayed overnight once. I was I was there almost five years. So I, I wound up uh, in the spring of 97, I said, when April 1st came, I didn't get that kind of feeling of relief. And I, you know, I picked up the Sunday paper and it was a job at National Fishman. And I said, well, nobody ever got a job out of a newspaper, right? That's, that's what they say. You never get hired out of, a, out of a newspaper ad. But I applied anyways. And uh, it took a while, but they, but they finally, uh, th- their first choice didn't take the position, right? For a se- this was senior editing job. And uh, you don't need I mean, to they, admit that, you, huh? You don't need to. Oh no, I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, because that's you know that's the, the 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 vagaries of life. What happened if I hadn't gotten the job? If this guy, who was probably more qualified than me, he was the editor of Alaska Fisherman's Journal. What if he'd taken it? But uh, but you know, I I I got the job, and uh, it's funny because just before I got hired, no, just before I st- I had been hired, but I was out in, in Chicago, and I was coming home, and I was in the departure lounge. And that was when 
uh, Sebastian Younger's Perfect Storm had come out in 97. Mm -hmm. It was still hardcover. And on my flight, what was uh, probably 100 people on the flight. In that departure lounge, there were probably six or seven people reading Perfect Storm. And I said, aha. I said, it's, we, there's an intersection here between fishing and- The mainstream. The mainstream. Yeah. And I said, this is a good time for me to be doing it. So I felt, I felt good about it. And, uh, it was the sign. Sometimes you need a sign, right? <laughs> well, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, you could, yeah. I mean, that was pretty random, but it looked like a sign to me, you mm -hmm. know? So I'm like, okay, well, this is the right thing to do. And I really haven't had any second thoughts. I mean, there's always things you could have done differently, but I, you know, I, I kind of got there and said, especially when they made me editor, I said, well, I'll, I'll, this is where I'll make my stand. I was in my 40s. And I said, I'll, 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 I'll do it here. This is, this is what I'm going to do. There was other things I might have done. But I said, this is what I'll do. So was that also based out of Boston or was that in Maine? No, it's funny you say that because when I saw the ad in the paper, they when I was a kid, I read the thing since I was funny. I was reading it when it was Maine Coast Fisherman as a kid before it became the National Fisherman. And uh, it was based in Camden. Mm. And it was based in Camden for many, many years. And so uh, Camden, Rockland, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, when I saw the ad in the paper, I almost... Threw it aside because, well, I can't get to Camden every day. That's ridiculous. Or so Rockland. And I looked at it said Portland. And so that, that was another sign right there, I guess. And so yeah, I, yeah. I applied. But yeah, I had thought it was going to be in Rockland and almost, almost passed over the ad. And I don't know how I saw the ad because I wasn't one to go, you know, leafing through the paper looking for help wanted. I mean, just this notion that I was sick of the commute to Boston. I wasn't really Might as well eager, take a look, see eager to get out of the globe. Yeah. In fact, I tell you, I, apply, I applied for an editorial writing job. there. I wrote editorials at the Portsmouth Herald and I loved that kind of writing, that column writing that I started doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't get it. And uh, the guy said, I really want to hire you, but I can't. Well, I, whatever that means, right? I, I, what does that mean? I really <laughs> want to hire you, but I can't. How many people have you said that yeah, to? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and he was, he was you know, he, his but... name was David Greenway. He was editorial page editor. He could hire anybody he wanted. So <laughs> when, when you say, I really want to hire you, but I can't. So I said, well, what about next opening? Oh, I couldn't promise you that. So at that point, I said, Jerry, you got to take responsibility for your own career. So that was another thing kind of easing me out the door there. I realized at that point that you can only take, you, you can take a lot of responsibility with the guy says, I want to hire you, but I can't. That's kind of a sign, I guess, you know, yeah. I, whatever. So anyways, <laughs> there I was back in, back in Maine, back in Portland and back in fishing. Back home. Back home. Yep. Yeah. I wonder your commute to Boston, how different would have been if you had to go up to Camden? Probably wouldn't have dealt with traffic, but it would have been a lot longer. Just as long. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would, it would, I think it would have been a little longer. We, I mean, uh, we used to go to uh, Rockland a lot when I was at, at the fisherman, and uh, even from Portland, it was. I would. I'm going to guess it was close to an hour and a half from Portland. I don't. I don't, wouldn't swear to it. Yeah. But it was certainly more than an hour. Wow. It's so up you there. add another thirty miles to Wells, and it would have been, you know, overwhelming. And and, and you know, once you 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 get to what that uh, is it the Bath Brunswick exit, and then after that you're on Route One, so you're not mm -hmm. even on a highway anymore. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it was yeah. I, I probably would have never done it because yeah. we would have never moved. You know, I don't. I, yeah, we were in Wells. Yeah. So then, did you stay at the National Fisherman for the rest of your career till the spring of nineteen? And if I'd seen the pandemic coming, I'd have still been there. You know. Yeah. Here you go. You're retiring. You're going to do this and do that, and can't go anywhere. Can't yeah. go anywhere. Yeah. You know. Oh. <laughs> but uh, again, what are you? What are you going to do? All but, you can do is just be guests on other people's podcasts. All you can do is <laughs> right. I well, I, I don't know. If I'd ever heard of a podcast. A girl I work with said, "You ever listen to podcasts?" I said, "What's a podcast?" So, but in the last year or two, I've gotten to listen to them. And I I listen to a lot of them. And so, uh, uh, yeah, but that was it. I, I went out the door without being urged. You know, I retired on my own terms for what it's worth. And, um, and you know, I had obviously concerns about the magazine. I mean, we, we, we know what's happened to commercial fishing over the years. 
So if, if fishing is shrinking, it's not going to do the magazine any good, especially if advertisers, if the advertiser universe is on the wane, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I, I went out of there saying, I don't want to be the last publisher of National Fisherman. And fortunately, it's still, it's still going. Is it still print only or it's, uh, is it online? It, well, it's right now it's going to a online format with four printed issues a year. Okay. You know, I, I mean, I, I love them to death. I'm going out to Seattle next week to Fish Expo or PME as they call it, Pacific Marine Expo. I don't know if it's the right thing, but I think they felt they had to do something. I mean, we had, I've struggled to make money with the magazine, but I made money with the magazine when I became publisher. I, I made money with the magazine, but not a, not a ton for sure. But the last couple of years, I wasn't making money with it, you know? So I was really concerned and we were doing everything we could. We were trying to get the online thing going and, and, uh, and meanwhile, keep the, the print book with some heft to it. And, uh, but it was a real struggle. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, that's, that's kind of showbiz for the fishing industry now. I mean, I guess it's the industry is at a size where it may kind of stay. I don't, I don't know. We, <laughs> here's a little rabbit hole. Uh, how many people are in the fishing industry? I don't know. So when William Hogarth was, was uh, running the National Marine Fishery Service around the turn of the century, he called me one time and said, what do you think? I said, geez, Bill, I don't know. I wish I did. And so he said, well, we're working on it down here. So the Congressional Research Office kind of said, well, they estimated 150 to 170,000 fishermen. Now that would be- In the U.S. In the U.S. That could be full-time or part-time, most likely licensed saltwater, okay? And it hasn't grown since then. That's a pretty small universe, if you stop and think of it. Mm-hmm. When I got there, our circulation was probably 40,000. Uh, when I left, it was under 30. So the penetration in the industry was really, is really good, right? If you're getting one out of five in your industry, I got to think you're, you're a success academically. But the problem is the industry is so small that the scale isn't there for you, you right, know? Yeah, and, so yeah, you, yeah. and so you struggle that way. So, you know, it's, it's- And then over the years, it's gotten more and more difficult for print media in general. In, exactly. So, the internet, the whole internet thing was, was tough for two reasons. Obviously, you, you had guys like me who were really print dogs anyways in the in the running the magazine mm-hmm. print dogs yeah I like that. and then and then you had an industry which the the demographics are we did a couple of surveys the industry the half of the industry when we did them was like north of 45 in age mm-hmm. so that's not a group that's going to warm up to the latest tech right, innovation right. you know or or computers or you know i'm thinking now that the ipads are so salient or and the tablets whatever you want to call them that yeah. maybe Younger people and older people are as li- as alike are adopting them. You know, I don't know. Uh, we're going to find out, I think, because it's it's you know it's, it's they're kind of betting the future. I think of national fishermen on on uh, on people being willing to read it online. And if you're on a fishing boat, uh, you know that that means probably having it on your iPad. Right, and you got to wonder if there's a psychology behind that too, right? Like when you switch over just to internet and you are required to be locked down on a computer to read some of this stuff that's taking something away from the experience of reading a physical magazine. Right. And so now that you can, that things like tablets are a lot more readily available. You're bringing back that tactile physical part of it where you're holding something and you're kind of flipping through something Uh, and you can sit on your couch or you can, yeah, walk around with it or something. It's, it's, I wonder if that's going to increase it. That's an interesting Thing to look that's at. that's 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 what we hope. I mean, I, I'm not working there anymore, but I'll always be. You know, uh, your heart's there, right? Fit. Oh, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what we hope. But you know, you, you get these guys. We used to do a lot of trade shows, and a guy would say, "Well, yeah, we keep it on a hopper right there on a the boat." You know, we, we, <laughs> so, so people <laughs> people read it. And they have, they have a habits around it, and uh, but I do think that we may get more eyes on it with the tablet. I don't know the pass along mm-hmm. readership. Every publisher says, 
well, my circulation is 30,000, but with the past long readership, we figure we got about 120,000 sets of eyes on it. But who knows, right? I mean, right. that's, mm-hmm. that's like, you know. I mean, we definitely but, did see yeah. a pretty big increase. You can talk to Jamie about that yeah. when, yeah, we, when we went from print magazine yeah. to the online magazine. Yeah. And that was in the process when I started here. Yeah. And I know that it just, the viewership just skyrocketed when they did that. Well, then, so. then you actually have hard analytics because you can track You can track them. Well, yeah. that's, that you is can the actually thing. see who's yeah. reading. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you'll still be printing. You said what quarterly? It quarterly, like? they're going to print the magazine. I think commencing in January. I think this this is the December issue, which will be at Seattle. Mm-hmm. I think is the last print issue. So it'll be interesting, obviously, because I'll be hanging around the booth to a certain extent while I'm out there. It'll be interesting to see what people say. And one thing I found in that industry, and it may be the same in yours, is that they walk up to you and tell you what they're thinking. You know what I mean? They don't say, "Oh, you're doing a great job." If they don't, if if they don't mean it, and if they if they think you're doing a lousy job or you're deficient in some area. They're fine with telling you, which is good. I mean, you you, you want of course straight Definitely. shooters, yeah, straight shooters, yeah. That's, that's this industry, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back uh, yeah. to I, I want to hear some some fish stories, some big fish stories. <laughs> go go back to when you were we fishing on the hard times, you know. That's uh, let's. <laughs> that was fun, you know. The uh, that's a you can work on deck for a long time, but when you get your own boat and you're a captain, particularly in dragon, it's day one. What were you dragging for? Uh. I would say codfish, haddock, yellowtail flounders, gray sole dabs, blackback okay. flounders, so like that. Uh, a little later on in my career, I went red fishing when I had a little bigger boat, but but with the hard times, which was a thirty-seven foot, essentially Jonesport lobster boat rig for dragon, mm-hmm. we we went for the the like I said, cod, the haddock, benthics, yellowtail, yeah. and haddock, yeah, the, the inside stuff. Yeah, and um, yeah, so you know, I got the boat. I I I pretty good experience dragon, but. Like I say, once you're a captain, it's it's a it's a whole new ball game, and you know you 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 crash. In other words, you set the doors wrong, you hang up, you catch rocks, you rip nets up, uh, all all kinds of. I had a net in the wheel. I think the first fall I had the boat. All these crazy things happen, and then one day you're just out there, and you know Everything at the time the regime was three three hour tolls is what most guys were trying to do, and then one day you go out and you make the three threes, you know, and you, it's the whole world changes for you, you know. And that's kind of what it was to me. I, I tell you, I bought the boat in September, uh, missed the first three payments, right? Because <laughs> I was, you know, crashing. Well, we, plus we had no pay, money. You can't pay with yeah. rocks. Right, right. <laughs> we had no money. You know, my, my wife and it's I had no money. Print. It was, you yeah. know, so we, we, uh, we missed the first three payments. And uh, I knew the bank, small town, of and I talked to bankers and I said, well, and they said, well, I had, it was an SBA loan. And they said, well, we can, we can, we think we can finagle this around and, and get you some, you know, time to get going. And it, and it worked. I, as I say, that winter, things turned around and I began to catch fish. And I had a chain net, which is a, a, it's in the olden days when fish were everywhere or as close to everywhere as they'll be because they never they never were everywhere, right? right? Mm-hmm. But when fish were very plentiful back in the, uh, let's say, earlier 70s and even before that, you could just go out on good bottom and catch fish with a chain net. Chain net gets right down there and, and mm-hmm. routes the flounders out and stuff like that. Tends the bottom very well, so like haddock will go into it and stuff like that. And um, I had to chain that when I got the hard times. It wasn't quite as good. We were fishing a little, a little, I would say, bonier bottom, but not not gravelly, but just muddier with more texture. So we caught we caught rocks. Mm-hmm. But as the winter wore on and I began to get a little better idea of what I was doing, I started catching more fish. And that spring, I was able to to build a new net with the help of a guy named Ken Young Jr., who's still fishing out of Cape Netic, and or I, I should say out of York. He lives in Cape Netic, and I got a better net. And you know, so it, you know. My mother used to say, nothing succeeds like success. So when you're doing a little better, you're likely to do a little better. Right. Well, you you get that extra energy yeah, to, to yeah. keep going and, and just yeah. get better and better. You so, ever have issues with dogfish? 
I heard that once oh, yeah. you once you catch one dogfish, you got to completely change your location. And yeah, there was one summer. I think it was eighty one. I'm not sure that uh, we were dogging up. Everybody was dogging up, as we say, yeah. wherever we went. And uh, you know, I again, I was fishing the high times, so we could only I could only put with the ground tackle I had. In other words, the stuff that tends the bottom. Mm-hmm. I could only get about 125. I think 125 pounds of wire on the winch. Not a lot. Yeah. And so uh, we didn't fish the deep water. In other words, we fished fairly inshore. And and that and but in the summertime, everybody's inshore. The, all that that small boat fleet was working mm-hmm. inshore anyway on dabs, which are the flounders. I guess they're. I think their name is American Place or something. Their formal name. And then Gray Soul. Okay. And um, everybody was getting dogged up. It's very discouraging. I mean, we we yeah. and it, we couldn't get away from them. I mean, in that we would fish what we used to call um, roughly forty fathoms between Boone Island, right, and you know to the northeast of Boone Island. Basically, we we get out to 60 sometimes, come in sometimes a little shoulder. But in the spring and summer of the year, that's about where we were. And I, I don't, there was nowhere out there we, we couldn't get them. And finally, you, you, you pack it up and paint the boat or whatever you do, just, you know, just to kind of stop beating <laughs> your head against the wall. And you hope when you go back out, the dogs have moved along. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've always heard that, like, especially when you're catching, like, benthic yeah. fish, like cod and, and flounder. Yeah. Like, once you get one dogfish, like. Oh, that's it for the day. That's all you're going to get for the rest of the day. Well, yeah, I think I think there's a likelihood that they drive other stuff too. Yeah. I mean, you know, bluefish. When I was a kid, I never remember any bluefish around here. And then by the '70s, they were they were around quite thick in the summer. And I can remember being on the beach in Ogunquit, and you'd see the mackerel jumping up onto the sand to get away from the bluefish. You know, so they certainly one fish can drive yeah, another. You know, it's interesting. And I think that's yeah. what happened with dogs as well. And it's funny because when we were kids, we used to love to go. We would, we we used to go mackerel fishing in the afternoon. Uh, we all had little outboard motorboats and we'd go out in front of a gunquit between there and Bald Head or towards the beach and we'd troll for mackerel. And we had, you know, I mean, you could reel them in three, four to a time and we would, we would take one or two home and then we'd throw, I mean, we would catch three or 400 yeah. and we'd just throw the rest back and I think most of them probably survived, you know, we just, because we had nothing to do with them. We just, yeah, well, we yeah. liked the sheer joy of catching them. And then at night, sometimes we would go out and sit by the, the, the buoys, the, the navigational buoys in front of the cove, the nun and can. And we would sit out there and, and go uh, dog fishing. We used to like to catch dog fish. It was just a, something else to catch, you know? And yeah. uh, we'd, we'd throw them back too. And um, yeah. And then, you know, later on, I think, Jesus, I enjoyed catching dog fish at one point. <laughs> but they were, yeah, they were, they were. Um, well, it's a cool fish. It's a cool looking fish. It's, it you're cool catching little sharks. It's right. cool. I right. guess that's, and that's you what know? you tell yourself when you're yeah. 13 years old. But when you're, when you're 30 years old, you're like, this is a drag. It's a nuisance. You know? yeah. <laughs> They're mosquitoes. Yeah. And I, I brought my just father. Say my father went fishing with me once. And uh, he went fishing with me because he, he always lived in New York City. And he went fishing with me once. And uh, all we caught that day was dogfish. I felt bad. Oh. You know? Well, there's, there's a, like, uh, recreational vessels that go out there that just take tourists out yeah. and they go out dogfish. They, they only yeah. catch dogfish because they, they say, Hey, come catch sharks. And if all well, the tourists go out and they, and so they, those, those, you know, they just go gangbusters because they can always catch dogfish yeah. out there. That's a, that's a sales job. I'll yeah. Tell you. If you're getting people out there telling, Oh boy, you're going to catch some dogfish today. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> there was a guy when I was a kid, he's out of the business now, but he used to, he used to have a, a party boat. He would take up to 40 people fishing. And he caught so many dogfish that they started calling him. The other fishermen started calling him dogfish. So, <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything he welcomed, you know. But uh, <laughs> I, the guy's still around. He's a hot ticket. I'm, I'm not going to say his name, but yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah. So you've been in the seafood fishing industry since basically 1962. Yep, I started lobster for a dollar a day. So yeah. what? I, and this is a very 
broad yeah. question, but what you must have seen so much change yeah. in the span of the past six yeah. years. So what do you think is the largest change that you've seen come into this industry? Technology. When I started, one of the reasons I crashed when I started was because we didn't have GPS. We didn't have Loran C. They had Loran A. I don't know if you guys have ever like used Loran A, but yeah. it's, a, it's a manual uh, process where you tune these different waves in, in a little, you look, you put your head in a loop and you tune a, a, a line, you, you try to line up two lines, then two boxes, and then two, two loops, like, uh, like, I don't know how to describe them, but uh, they're like this. They're like waves. They, you, they, you try to line up two waves. So, and then when you're done, you might be half a mile away. You know, then you read the numbers that, that are on the, that you've dialed up. You're, you know, you're tuning pictures, then you look at the numbers. And if, when you're done with that, you might be half a mile from, from where you think you are. You might be. <laughs> and then if it's nighttime, it's, it's trickier. If it's snowing, it's almost impossible. Yeah. So that was Loran A. So that was one thing. So in other words, you learn to tow by where we were, shore marks uh, and Loran A. And shore marks are very good. You know, they can, you can be a little off kilter because of the tide sometimes. But basically, we had a lot of marks off, you know, off of Wells and Ogunquit that we used to tow. That would toe's name, Meat and House on the Barn was one toe. There was a toe called a skinny toe, which you put bald head here under one hill, and then you moved it to the four hills down to, the, to get to the other end of the toe. You stay between 39 and 41 fathoms, 39 and a half and 41 and a half fathoms, something like that. And, you know, so that was, but you, you really, you, what you couldn't do was you couldn't press the edge of the bottom, like fish like the edges, right? You really couldn't press the edges. You, you use those marks. And stayed out in the middle because you never were quite sure where the edges were. Mm. Right, and, you know, better safe than sorry. Right, and the tide could could get you into problems. And there were fish out in the pretty good going. And so when I when I got the hard times in '79, there were guys who Loran C had arrived, and there were guys who had it. I didn't have it. So you take the Loran C and then the sonar, scanning sonar. We call them scanners, but it's a sonar. And the, so the, now you've got the sonar. And I, by the time six months had passed, I had both of them. You know what I mean? And uh, well, the boat came with a sonar, and then I got a Loran C. So the, but with the sonar, you can see where the hard bottom are is, where, where the cracks are that you might want to try and go up and see if there's a few fish up in there hiding. And you can get up on the edge. Maybe you can get to 39 fathoms instead of 39 and a half. You know, you can get a little shoulder. Maybe there's a few more fish up there. Uh, so that was a huge difference between the Loran C, and then you, you wrote the numbers down. Right, so now you once you made this toll, then you charted by out. Using this, but yeah, you, now you wrote the numbers down. And you can go back the next day and just like steering or driving a bus up through there. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not quite that simple with, with tide and stuff and wind, but it was, it, 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 what it did was guys like me who had been around fishing for a long time, we thought we had this vast storehouse of knowledge that would, would help us. Well, we did, but it became moot. And guys could go to trade school and jump on a boat. And if they had the gumption, they could, they could tow right alongside you because of the, because of the, electronics you know yep. and it's, it's not quite that simple but for but for the right guys it was that simple There's a lot of new blood and they came in and they did pretty well and so those two things combined with the technology combined with the uh capital construction fund which came about after the studs magnuson act they that was a 200 mile limit i think that went into effect in 77 okay. uh so they 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 chased all these other boats out of here right with a 200 mile limit and a lot of the boats were ground fish, but a lot of boats were heron boats and, and catching our, our forage fish too. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book written on that, now out of print, called um, Distant Waters. And it's about, about how these Soviet blocks and fleets and others 
really came over here and did a hell of a job on our on our on our stocks, right? So you had so the capital construction fund came in and they because they said, well, we've driven all these other countries out of here. We got to capitalize the fleet. Mm-hmm. So the capital construction fund said, if you buy a boat and you make money with it, if you take your profit and put it into a capital construction fund with which you can build another boat, you don't have to pay taxes on it. So now you had doctors and lawyers and others who maybe knew a little bit about fishing or had an affinity or whatever, they started plowing money into the fleet. So this fleet went, for example, in Wells, we probably had, well, in Wells Bay, there were at one point probably a dozen boats that fished it. And a year or two later, there were probably 50 boats that fished it. Now, they weren't all based there, but they were, you know, from the area, say from Rye to South Portland or something like that, or Portland. And so the, the, the concentration, uh, we started hammering, we started doing what the foreigners had done, you know, but now we're right inside doing it where fish were spawning and stuff like that. So I, mean, I think we, 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 you know, we put a little bit of a hurting on the fish, but, but we were kind of incentivized to do it. And then by the time uh, we realized what was going on, it was, you know, it was, things, were, things were starting to take a different, a different hue. So mm-hmm. I think the technology was the big thing uh, as far as changing fisheries, but, but then the next phase, I think the stage was set for the next phase. Okay, now we can, we can catch all these fish. And the next phase was, uh-oh, what, what's happening to the fish? And that was too many boats. You know, yeah. too few fish. So, and that was, I think, in large part because of the capital construction fund, because it just it made it another investment. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, people, I was very lucky to get into the fishing business, but you know, it wasn't something you just came along and, and got into. But when the fleet expanded, now there's jobs for everybody, and and you know, and anybody could get a boat, and it, it just, you know, it was. I think the stage was set for where we are now, forty years ago or more, fifty years ago. Yeah. So do you think it would it's easier to get into the fishing industry now than it was 40 oh, it's years tough. ago? Now, because, you know, when I went, I mean, I, I, I went, I put $10 in the mail and got a commercial fishing license, mm-hmm. went down and saw the harbor master at the Cove, who was one of my best friend's fathers. I said, hey, bud, can I get a more? And he said, I don't have one, but I'll find a place where you bring the boat in. You know, that's, that's, that's the way it was. Now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, you can't, you got to buy a permit. Mm-hmm. And then you got to buy the fish that you're going to catch with the, with the quotas, right? You can't mm-hmm. just go out and catch codfish. You got to you got to buy somebody's quota. Isn't it a lottery system to get a permit too? So, for, lo- for lobster for licenses, lobster, yeah. it is. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Nice. Uh, when I bought my lobster license, I went as a deckhand. I never lobstered on my own, but I went as a deckhand. You had to have a license. It was ten dollars. You sent the ten dollars into the state. You, you put a buoy color down. They sent you back a number. You know to 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 uh, brand into your buoys. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. off you went. You went lobstering. And now that's very difficult to get into now. I mean, that, that the way I, I said to a friend of mine quite a few years ago, I said, well, maybe I'll go lobster when I retire. He says, good luck to you. You'll be 80. Be- if you put in for your license now, you'll be 80 before you ever get it. <laughs> because, you know, it's, I think it's something like, and it varies from county to county. And I don't want to get this wrong, but it's something like uh, three guys have to go out for two guys to come in or something like that, or two guys go out for one guy to come oh, okay. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there is a provision to get kids in. So in other words, if, if a kid can go out and get, a, and get some time in as a, as a deckhand, before he's 18, 19, 20, there's different, different rules on it. Kind of gives a, him a leg a thousand hours. Oh, he can get a license. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. which is good. I mean, I, I'm very glad they did that. In other words, so they'll, because you need new entrants to the fishery. Mm-hmm. So they have provided for it. It's, it's a harder job for an old entrant, an old guy to get into the fishery. Mm-hmm. But but we will have new blood in the fishery, so that is a, a good thing for the lobster industry. Yeah, we've always said yeah. the the main lobster industry is just a a poster child for self regulation, and so there must 
they got to have some strategy behind all that that is working for them. So I think the fishermen are good at protecting it. I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. there was a, a college professor named James Atchison who wrote a book called The Lobster Gangs of Maine, and it, it, it kind of looked at that from a little different angle. But the, but the idea was that the lobster industry really looks out for itself in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's true. It, and it's, it's been that way. And there used to be a guy down the cove that used to call me enforcer. I mean, it was very informal. And he was not uh, an abrasive guy at all. But, you know, it was, you, you know, you had to have, you couldn't all say lobster traps on one another. Yeah. Everybody mm-hmm. had to have a little berth and a little space. So, so uh, and, and, and people worked it out. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were spats. Before, before I can really remember it, I think I might have been around, but there was a, a trap war off of Gunquit. And every now and then you hear about so-called trap wars. But I, I don't know if you hear about them anymore. But in those days you heard about them. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of sh- shook themselves out. Yeah, yeah, and the same thing with the with the with the you know it, it's hard to, you you can cheat at lobstering, but it's it's not easy because right. you're bringing the lobsters in to somebody whose tanks are going to be gone through and stuff like that. So, so I think that uh, yeah, between that and the and the uh, and the V notch in the in the female tail, mm-hmm. I think that those are those are two big things. And the, we throw the big lobsters away in the state of Maine. Yeah, the maximum size yeah. limit is and is uh, big. so I think uh, I, I can tell you this: they're catching way more lobsters now than they were catching when I was a kid. No because question of about it. Because of that. I right? think so. Well, yeah. And some guys say that there are so many traps out there now, it's like a ranch out there for the fish, for the lobsters. They yeah. just walk around and eat, you know? Mm. Um, so I don't so know. So they're getting bigger too. So they're, yeah. they get, they get, yeah. got to get thrown back half of them. <laughs> yeah. No, the lobster industry is in great shape. I think, I think the, the, the whale is one issue. And Yeah, we were talking about that yeah. beforehand. We were talking about yeah. the right whale. The right whale, exactly. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, is, is what the Gulf of Maine is said to be the fastest warming body of seawater in the world what impact is that true inshore is offshore where is that being observed Mm -hmm. and what's the impact going to be i I don't know uh you know i I can't imagine we we do see fish from further south or west of here starting to show up so where the lobsters push further north and east i don't know but um you know fish tend to go where the food is and there's certainly with with a concentration of lobster traps in the water out here now a lobster would have to be crazy to go too far because he can eat yeah. whatever he wants. Yeah, you'd think it'd have to be, uh, the water would have to be too warm for them to, it'd right. have to be it a survival would, it, issue. It, it would have to be a metabolic issue yeah, with them, yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny because when I was a kid, you, you, you guys have all seen traditional lobster traps. They go in on, usually on one end, and they call that the kitchen, I guess. Yeah. And then they go into the back, and that's the parlor. And when I was a kid, they said, well, you know, they, they, go, into the, they go in the kitchen, they eat, they eat the bait, and they get a little logie, and they go in the parlor, and- they, mm-hmm. I don't know what they do. They nap or whatever. Smoke cigars. And then we have cognac, right? And then they, they get, the trap gets hauled and they go ashore if they're big enough. And then when this, I wrote a, read a book called, a great book called Secret Life of Lobsters. Oh, Anybody ought book. to read yep. it. And uh, if they're interested in lobsters. And, and somebody down, I think the guy's name was Waterman, but the guy, he, he had a camera, underwater camera. And what, it, what the camera showed was the lobsters were literally, this was down around Rockland somewhere, were literally lining up. Yeah, to go in traps, and they go in, they eat, they go out the other and side. They leave, yep. There was no, there was no. Well, I'm gonna have a nap now, and so you were catching the stupid one that happened to be there when the trap came up, <laughs> which means there's a whole lot more lobsters out there than anybody thought. And then the, in the same book, uh, he cites some work by a guy named Robert Stenick from the University of Maine, great lobster mm-hmm. researcher, and he had a submarine, I guess, and he went out there and he said that the I don't know what where he was, but where he was, he said the bottom was paved with 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 uh, lobsters. Female wow. lobsters, big female lobsters. So that, that may be an exaggeration, but it gets at a it gets at a at a fundamental right. truth of abundance, right? And so, 
you know, when you hear those stories, you think, well, this industry is in good shape. Makes you feel a little better, right? <laughs> and, you know, you can't catch a lot if there aren't a lot around. And, and like yeah. I said, when, when I was a kid, we were doing, uh, I remember in the fall, in the summertime, when the lobsters went into shedding, it would really drop off. You know, you might get half a lobster was a good fit. I mean, when you say half a lobster, that means half, if you hauled 40 traps, you got 20 lobsters. Right, yeah. That was probably as good as it got sometimes when they were in shedding, you know? And, uh, and then it would shut off even more. A guy would say, well, I hauled 70 and then I got six lobsters and I came in. And now, I mean, I talked to a guy the other day, he hauled 150 traps for 900 lobsters. And the price is pretty high. That's good yeah, fishing. Yeah, now, really this, is, high, this yeah. is the fall. This is the good season. You know, yeah. it's not July or August. But still, I mean, that, that gets at an, an idea of abundance that, that we never saw. We fished 100, and I think when I fished with, the, both guys I fished with in my youth fished around 150 traps, maybe 200 at the most. I don't even think they fished 200. So we'd actually fish each trap. In other words, we would look for a sand spot or whatever. We'd, we'd try to put the, the, the traps down. I only run in the summertime, right? And we would try to put the traps down where we thought the lobsters were going to come across the sand when they came out of shedding. Mm -hmm. So we're like stalking them. And, and here's a, what do you call it? Unexpected, or uh, the unexpected results of what you do. So now, whatever it was, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they put it, we were fishing 150 traps. There were guys in Casco Bay that fished 2,000, but we fished 150. Yeah. And by the time uh, the 90s got around and the lobster head up, there were a lot of guys were fishing a lot more gear but not everybody. Mm -hmm. So they put a trap limit in of 800 traps and now everybody fishes 800, yeah, lobsters, right, 800 yeah, traps, yeah. right? So because they feel like they got to have the traps to get the catch history maybe or, or to be competitive or whatever it is they got to do. So when you're setting 800 traps, I think you're just stringing them out there and waiting for the lobsters to come at you. Yeah, you know? a, and I've never fished that many traps, but that, I mean, there's no way you can shag 800 traps around from here to there. You know what I mean? You, it's you, like yeah. K, K versus yeah. Y selection. You know, you go, yeah. You, what, what, yeah. what, which strategy are you going to yeah. take? Let's just put as many out there as we can yeah. because. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because I mean, I think the guys are making good money, but yeah. there is a wag the dog component of this because when we fished, like I say, we, I, again, when I went lobster and I was with somebody, I was with a couple of different guys, but we fished these traps that we fished and, and they had, you know, we fished out of wooden boats with gas engines. And when the engine went bad, you went to the junkyard and you found one that matched up to the transmission you had in your boat yeah. to the bell housing for the Marine bell housing. And that's what you put in. And you, most guys went alone. A handful of guys took somebody with them. Like I said, a couple of guys, Red Bridges and another guy, they paid me a buck a day when I was little, you know? So what, I mean, they, were, they were being nice guys, really. So it was a much more artisanal of an industry than it is now. Now, the, well, in fact, I bought a new pickup truck in 1973 and a guy down the Cove said to me, it was a brand new pickup truck, cost me 3600 He said, I just built that boat for 3600 Why didn't you do that? He said, you could have had a boat instead of a truck, you know? <laughs> now, now, I mean, these, they're, $400,000 boats with 800 horsepower diesels. Yeah, yeah. They got, they've all got somebody with them. Maybe some guys have two guys with them, you know, to fish these 800 traps and they're going offshore. They're going here, they're going there. So I think they're probably coming out better financially than we did in, or the lobstermen did in my time or, yeah. or my, in my youth. But there is a certain intensification of the effort too. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that's, it, it's interesting that the regulations are, in place specifically for that fisheries for yeah. the lops and they're being successful. So that, that goes, that shows a couple things. One that it's being well, re well regulated, but there's an abundance of lobster. Right. But we talked, this whole conversation kind of stemmed off of technology advancements, right? right? It was, what was yeah. Lantrum A? What, what am I probably saying that wrong? What was it? The, oh, Lorancy, where they yeah, came out yeah, with, when they yeah. went from Lorancy to Lorancy. Yeah, yeah. Lorancy was accurate to 50 feet. And it was, you didn't have to tune it. It just, the numbers came up. But the other one was yeah. a half mile, you said. Yeah, I would say on the Loran A, 
depending on where you were, it could be half <laughs> that mile. Sometimes really it could be worse. Yeah, it could be close sometimes, but it was never a different number at the front of the boat and the back of the boat. Yeah, like Lorenz is. I mean, Lorenz was. It's literally, uh, I think, fifty. It's well, I would say this. I honestly think Lorenz is more accurate than GPS. Not as quite a reliable signal. Because it, you can run into problems with snow and things like that with Lorenz C. Yeah, and you said the tides can affect it. But stuff. but it was extremely accurate, and uh, and um, you know that's when we started getting all the measurements like speed over ground and all the the navigational stuff that they now build into GPS routinely. Kind of evolved out of out of uh, Lorenz C. I personally wish they had kept Lorenz C operational. I realize it costs money, but it's a ground a land based system. I mean, it, you, you have these Lorenz stations based on. How many are the, the, the Coast Guard did these remote outposts around the world where they, where they beam these signals from? Mm-hmm. And it's land-based, so it's, it's pretty safe. In other words, somebody could jam a bunch of satellites and the GPS would go away. I mean, that's, you know what I mean? It's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that that's going to happen tomorrow, but it could happen. Right. And so Loran C would be a nice backup in an era when you'll probably need it. You know, it's more, more transportation. I mean, you know, they, the, the uh, airlines rely on GPS to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. F- fishermen rely on it. Navigation relies on it. The, all the, the AIS, the automatic identification system that the, that the big freighters and stuff like that use, they all, everybody relies on GPS. It'd be nice to have a backup. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. also, you know, it's that age-old thing where the more yeah. technology you have, the more opportunities there are for things to go right. wrong. Exactly. Like you get yep. a, a $50,000 car that's all souped up with all kinds of bells and whistles. Every single one of those bells and whistles is one more thing that could go wrong. Right. So that's exactly. another way to look yeah. at it. Yeah, my father no, talks no. about that. Yeah. He, used to, he used to work, at, he, he, he works on cars and he's like, you know, now it's just a giant computer ch- chip. Right. It's a lot different than what it was when he was working on cars. Yeah. And it's no, no different. And it, it's funny how you were talking about some of these technologies because w- what went through my mind, I kind of zoned out for a minute and was thinking about how handy it would be to have some of these, like a backup. Yeah. Specifically. Because yeah. the world gets plan, more, really. more there, there's more room for like a, virus to hack something that everyone relies on and some of these older practices that don't rely on so much technology and just are could be very useful like Mm. the ham radio everyone was like oh you know the pandemic we all need ham radios again (laughs) just in case (laughs) yeah no that's that's absolutely right so jerry do you know what the status is of the hard times now i don't Uh, a friend of mine took it down east scalloping i was running another boat he took my boat down east scalloping and uh the thing sunk and we raised it and I settled with the insurance company, and then I sold the hull. Like I, the insurance company gave me the boat after mm-hmm. I after it was, th- th- I was lucky to get the boat back. Yeah. But I at that point I sold it, and a guy from Wells or well Gunkwood actually fixed it all up, and he sold it. But it looked to me like it was going to be a pleasure boat. Yeah. And I haven't seen it since. I I, I would assume it's still around, but I I honestly don't know. It's, I don't. I nobody says to me, hey, I saw the hot times the yeah, other day. Yeah. I was here or there. But I would think that it would still be around. Although it's an old boat, it was built in 1979, so it'll be an old boat, but. I, when I fished the Princess, that was built in 1944, and I fished that in the 80s. So uh, a wooden boat, you know, if, you, if it's taken care of, it'll last a long time. So now that you're retired, ever have any thoughts to try and track any of those old boats down, get them back? No, you know, that, I mean, I pretty, would love to see the hard fun. times if somebody took good care of it over the years. I like wooden boats. I realize that, you know, maybe there are certain aspects of a wooden boat that are not practical today. Hmm. But I like wooden boats. They're, they, they ride nice. They're quieter. They don't seem damp. I don't know. I just like them. And uh, so I would love to see the hard times if it had been well cared for. Yeah. Uh, the Princess, which was a beautiful boat, that sunk. They sunk that scalloping <laughs> after I had it. Uh, they put a dredge through the side, I guess, and popped the plank off. And oh. Down it went. They, the guys got off. Nobody, nobody was, nobody was stayed with it. But, oh. but yeah, they sunk it quick. And um, I ran a fiberglass boat called a 
Trisha Lynn and Bruno and Stillman, that, that, that iconic almost 42-footer that was, they built a jillion of them over here in Newington. And uh, you, you wouldn't recognize it if you saw it because there's so many. There's you so wouldn't, many, you yeah, wouldn't yeah. know it was yours unless they, they had the same name on it, you yeah. know? So, yeah, but boats are interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I see that attraction. But I think the only one would be the high tide that really, yeah. really get my attention. Perhaps it, because the Princess, if it was still around, but it's not. Yeah. Because a wooden boat is always a little bit of a one-off, even if there's a lot of them were built by mm-hmm. the same builder. So either one of those wooden boats, but would you, would be, at this point, I'm assuming it would be just the high times. It would be around. God, and it might have so, a different name. Wouldn't it be so cool if we could track it down? I, was, I mean, I have a better chance of seeing it than any yeah. of you. Just That's true. Where I live. Yeah. <laughs> is there like any unwritten rule of renaming boats if you purchase it? Do people it's, try to keep the is, boat the name the same? Or It is said to be bad luck. I don't consider myself especially superstitious. But on the other hand, there were things I wouldn't do. <laughs> like leaving a hatch cover upside down was an absolute no-no on a fishing boat. I never once did that. Um, and then there were some things I wasn't quite as fussy about. Some guys, you couldn't bring a banana aboard their boat. Uh, <laughs> uh, don't say pig on a boat. That's another one. Uh, some guys didn't like mirrors on boats. And so one guy said something about a single lens reflex camera. You know? So... Oh my God. You know, uh, but that, but the hatch cover was the only one that I re- don't whistle. It'll make it blow, make the wind blow. Um, there's probably a, as many superstitions as you as there are fishermen, but but the one that I definitely <laughs> adhered to was not to leave a hatch cover upside down. Gotcha. That's funny. And I, but the guy who first told me that was a guy named Stuart. He was an old guy in Portland, and he was the engineer on this boat I was on called a Vandal. And he told me that, and I said, "Really, Stuart?" He said, "Oh yeah." He said, "He said he he said there was such and such a boat." He said they got. He said they left the hatch cover over and they got run down in the fog and everybody got lost. So he said, "What's that tell you?" Well, I mean, that's. But, I, but <laughs> even well. when I, I was eighteen at the time, but I said, "Well, I, you know, I'm not sure that's closing the deal." But I, like I said, I, I absolutely never better safe than sorry. Left, left, never left the hatch cover upside down. It's an easy. It's an yeah. easy thing to do. You might as well. Right. Well, well it, it was something that everybody here do. I mean, I think right. I don't know that you would get fired, but if you did that. You'll get you would, somebody would bring you up short on it, yeah. You'd at least yeah. get called oh, out. Oh, definitely, right? yeah. yeah. That's, that's hilarious. Yeah. I love that. All right, before we wrap things up, we're actually, we're getting down to the wire here, but before we wrap things up, back into your edit- editorial yep. portion of your career, um, what is some, uh, kind of your most memorable moment from, from that when you were working? In no question, O.J. Simpson. Okay. <laughs> that was a crazy <laughs> night. We were at the, I was at the Globe. This story doesn't take too long to talk, to tell. No, no. And it was a Friday night, and it, you, there, were, there were all these, like, changes in the story, right? The arc of the story kept changing. They were going to arrest him, but they couldn't find him. And then, and so every time something happened, there were TVs in the newsroom, right? So yeah, I worked on what they call a universal desk where all the copy editors were. There are about probably 20 editors, you know, higher ups and, and then down to the copy editor level in the newsroom, maybe more, maybe 25. Anyways, so every time the story would, would, would turn, we'd all run, jump up from our <laughs> monitors and go look at the TV, you know? OJ was doing this, or they were looking for him there. And then it was funny. It was about ten thirty at night, and OJ, they that the this is AC, the guy uh, Al Cowling, some football player or some guy, had him in his Bronco, yeah. And he and he called the cops on a cell phone, which was probably something to have in nineteen ninety four, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And he said, "I've got OJ with me in the in the car." In other words, he was making some kind of an escape or something was going on. And that, and so everybody had run to the TVs, and after that came out, everybody ran to the phone. To call their wife, I did. I called my. I said, "Get up! You got to see this. OJ's on the loose." So that was that was. You know, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, I was in the newsroom when I think Rose Kennedy died. When they they had the handshake with uh, it was called a handshake for history. But anyway, e- Egypt or the Palestine Palestinian 
Palestinians and Israel had a handshake with Clinton. I was there when that happened. Rose Kennedy, a uh, couple of horrible murders there. That's John Salvi, Washington killings in Boston. That was a, a big story in the 90s. But the O.J. Simpson was definitely the, the, the story that, the, the night that I will always remember. And we didn't get out of the newsroom. So the paper supposedly goes to bed at like first edition. They used to call it the main edition because they would, they would get it done at 1030 and it would go on the trucks and head up to Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was first, but they, they, derisively they would call it the main edition. So they would say, if you make mistakes, you can make them in the main edition as long as Matt's not at his camp. Because Matt Storm was the editor and his camp was in, uh, I know where it is, but it's up, up around the Androscoggin River somewhere. And uh, mm-hmm. he said, if you make a mistake and he's up there, you could, you could hear about it. You know? <laughs> because, you know, because otherwise, you could, if he was at home, by the time third edition came out, it was a lot of the paper, you know, the mistake had been cleaned up and it wasn't in the paper anymore. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that's funny. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was, and then, th- so th- anyway, third edition used to be done about 1130 and you were usually done with the paper at that point. And that night, I left, like I said, I left the newsroom around two in the morning. So we were just late. Whoa. But, well, we kept having, a, and of course, the story was taking place on the West Coast. So developments kept, you know, coming long past all of our deadlines. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, probably not not a momentous story in, in many ways, but for those of us that were working that night, it was it was. Yeah, I mean, I I was too young to understand what was going on, yeah. but I very clearly yeah. remember everyone's yeah. lives being completely consumed with O.J. Yeah. Simpson. Oh, yeah. oh, no question. I mean, yeah. that trial was like ah, I forever, yeah, yeah. forever. I yeah. mean, it, it's yeah. all that was talked about, and I yeah. and I talked about it all the time. Yeah. I had no idea what yeah. was going on. Now but, we see like a Bronco, we're just like, oh hey, remember yeah, that yeah. time? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> So. Awesome. Oh, my favorite question. I know. Maddie loves this. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to stop, if you were to talk to someone that's thinking about entering the seafood industry, what advice would you give them? Well, I, I would give them the same advice, believe it or not, that we got in my time, which was get a degree in something so that if the fishing doesn't work out, you got something to fall back on. Really, I, I would. And I, I mean, because fishing is fishing. And you know, even if the fish are there and the price is there, there's no guarantee. So, and we know now that maybe the fish aren't there, even if the price is, and, or the regulators could shut you down or whatever. So I would say have something to fall back on, but I wouldn't tell them not to do it. I mean, I, I loved it when I went. I, I sometimes ask myself even now, how'd you ever leave it? But I, on the other hand, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to jump back into it. You know what I mean? But Unless we can track down the hard times, right? It would be a, it would be a little boat if I went back fishing. It would certainly be a little boat, not a big boat. Yeah. So the high times would be a little boat, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll keep my eyes yeah. open. Yeah. If any of our listeners in Maine have any idea where what what might have happened to that boat, they've already know. tuned off because they realized they got the bottom half of the muffin for the globe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they sure did. Yeah, the Maine edition. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Anything else that you want to kind of get out there while you have the platform? Well, you got the mic? No, I, the time went quickly, you know, but I didn't really have any stories that I was, that I was saying, well, I got to tell them about this or that. You know, I, I would, I'm fine with it. It was, uh, it was enjoyable. I'm glad I came. If there's ever an area you want to drill down in sometime, maybe, Absolutely. you know, we'll I, definitely I would have love you back to do on. it again. But uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us. We really yeah. appreciate you coming down. Such a long drive from Wells. <laughs> well, we, there's no, no we, beach traffic so no beach traffic yeah. today that's for sure yeah. no we really appreciate it and we hope that you'll go yeah. into town and get some oysters while you're here in Portsmouth or something oh I'll tell you what I, so here's what I'm doing now I'm, I'm telling you this because I don't want to falter on it so I'm, I'm trying to actually write something on fishing okay. and I had two ideas for a, a book uh, one on fishing one on something else all together and I want to do the other one first who knows if I'll be successful I've never written a book and long materials how to handle I'm, I'm learning very quickly mm-hmm. than shorter material 
And a kid I went to school, we have this little retreat every year somewhere in Northern New England. We get together, 15 to 20 of us, rent a place and stay there three, four days. And this kid was a sharp marketing kid. He said, he said, Jerry, I'm telling you, well, he's not a, none of us are kids now, but we were kids together in school. He said, you got to do the fishing book first because he said, whoever's going to publish it has got a reason to read it. He said, if you do a book on something else, they don't know who you are. They may not read it. But if you go in and say, I went fishing, then I was publisher of this magazine uh, and editor of it, maybe they'll mm-hmm. give it a read. And if it's any good, maybe you can publish it. So I'm trying to do a book on fishing. It'll be based, I'm going to try to, it's going to be on the people in the book, uh, p- people that I've met in the fishery mostly, and some of the customs of the fishery. I'm going to try to keep myself as far out of it as I can. The old journalist in me doesn't want to become a part of the book, mm-hmm. but I, it's unavoidable that I'll be in there. So I'm having a real hard time with all the material. Where does this story go? Where, where does this anecdote begin? Where does it end? Yep. You know, what, what, where do I put this guy? Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm, I'm having fun with it. it. It kind of, when I talk about it, but then when I sit down and write, it's a drag. But, <laughs> but hopefully <laughs> at some point we can maybe talk about that. Just not that it's going to be published, but just that I, all I want to do is tell somebody is if I can just finish it, mm-hmm. I'll be happy. I'd love to publish it. But if I can just finish it, yeah. that'll be good enough. Yeah. Yep. So that's, that's, that's awesome. That's the end. I don't have a name yet. So well, make sure you keep yeah. us updated on I that. I will. And, uh, yeah. and we'll yeah. definitely have you on to yeah. talk about it when you finish yeah. it. Well, it's not going to be as soon as I think. As soon as I thought. I told somebody, I said, I said, uh, Cry the Beloved Country was written in three weeks. So that was kind of like my thing. I can write this in a month. It ain't going to happen. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have to check facts. When you're writing, I'm learning. You have to look stuff up. You mm-hmm. think you're, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They talk about eyewitness testimony being not reliable. So I get the, I'm writing something. I'm like, was that really what he did for a living? Was that, you know, yeah, so, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. Well, thank you. And definitely keep yeah. us posted. Yeah. Uh, again, we really appreciate it. And uh, happy to be here. We'll talk yeah. to you soon. Yeah. Okie doke. Thank you. Folks, that was our conversation with Jerry Frazier. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. That was a fun one. Oh, yeah. We hope you learned something. And I know I learned, actually, I learned a lot in this episode. Me too. It was fascinating. And I love some of the stories that he had. So, um, we really, hope you liked it too. Yeah, really glad that he was able to join us. And before we sign off, again, want to remind you to subscribe to Aquademia wherever you listen so you can get those brand new episodes as soon as they're available. And again, we are on Twitter at Aquademia Pod. Go ahead and check us out and give us a follow. If you want to contact us, fill out the contact form located at globalseafood.org slash podcast. And as always, I'm going to ask you to rate and review the podcast because it helps us out so much. That's right. So we will talk to you next time. And hey, thanks for listening. Ciao. Bye.